Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Well, hey, good morning, Three Creeks, and welcome back. I am uh, a couple weeks off, man. I start getting fidgety. I can't wait to get back with my church family, and so uh, thanks for being here. You could have been anywhere on the planet today, and you chose to be here. You chose to wake up and spend Sunday morning with us, and so for that, I'm grateful. Uh, We're starting a brand new series, like Kendall just mentioned, and true to form here at Three Creeks, we're going to pick a book of the Bible And we're going to make our way through it for a while, just verse by verse, a slow and methodical voyage through the book of Ephesians. Uh, It's 155 verses, so it might take us a little while, but uh, I think it's going to be really good. It's, It's been a long time coming. Our church is about five years old. We've never gone through Ephesians before in its whole. We've, we've, picked a passage here, there from time to time, but we've never gone all the way through Ephesians. And in some ways, that's kind of funny to me because it's, it's one of the all-time greats, if you will. But at the same time, man, Ephesians is it's kind of like a black diamond. And so for a young rookie pastor like myself, you kind of got to put your time in on the bunny slopes and the greens and the blues before you go to the black diamond. So here we are. We're going to take a, a plunge down the hill of Ephesians, if you will. Uh, somebody, uh, I, somebody quoted Ephesians or said Ephesians is kind of like, it's, it's, it's almost as, it's as good as Romans. It's just shorter. And I thought that's perfect for a simple guy like me. I need something that's a little bit shorter. So 155 verses over the next couple months. Um, and, and when you, when you do Ephesians, when you take a church through Ephesians, when as a church family, you decide to go through Ephesians you want it to count and you want the time to be right. And here, let me explain why. This is the perfect time for Three Creeks Church to go through Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter and it was written to a group of Christians that were, that were it was a young church in a popular city. Does that remind you of anybody? It was a church that was facing a lot of cultural and social pressure to bend and to move the line a little bit and to give in and to cave and to give up a little bit of ground. Does that remind you of anybody? It was a church, I kid you not, that did not meet in a church but met in a school. It's true. Does that remind you of anybody? It was a church that... It wasn't so popular to be a Christian. In fact, it began to kind of cost something socially if somebody wanted to jump into Christianity. Does that remind you of any place that you live? And ultimately, this is the one I really want you to remember. It was a young church that needed to mature spiritually to be able to handle everything that life was going to throw at them. Does that remind you of anybody? It was a church that needed to mature spiritually. The the verse that we just put up on the screen, that is from the letter to the Ephesians where Paul says, hey, I don't want you to be tossed around like infants anymore. It's time to mature. It's time to grow up. And so, friends, that's that's the reason why this is perfect for our church, for Three Creeks in 2023 to start this year by going through the book of Ephesians 
and maturing in our faith so that we can handle all that is coming at us in our lives. Today, I have a few objectives as we start the series. The first is I want to tell you about this young church in Ephesus. I want to tell you about the city of Ephesus. I want to tell you how this church got started. Does anybody know who really planted the Ephesians church? You might think Paul, but I might lead you to believe that it wasn't just him. There, was, there were a couple other people in the mix. When did it happen? What was Ephesus like? I want to give you today a context for the whole book of Ephesians. And the reason why we've got to give it a context is because I've shared this before, but I, I need to share it again. Any text in the Bible without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. Let me just say it again. Any text without the context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. So, well, so uh, if, uh, man, I can, make, I can make the Bible say a lot of things. I, I can take a text, I could pull a verse out here or there, and I could make it say a lot of things. And that is why the context of Ephesians is so important. It makes sense for us to stop for a minute and go, who wrote this? Why did they write this? When did they write this? Who did they write this to? What was the purpose of the letter as a whole? And when we, when we zoom out and we understand that, well, then making our way through every verse is going to make a lot more sense than just trying to open up the Bible and start reading and going, let's just do what this says. There's more to it. There's a context to it. So today, my goal is to give you the context of it. So if we're going to make our way through Ephesians, verse by verse by verse, then it makes sense for us to open up our Bibles and turn to, you guessed it, Acts chapter 18. <laughs> so let, let's go to Acts chapter 18, which is actually the historical story of how this church came to be. Acts, the book of Acts, is, is essentially the, the history, the historical recording of the beginning of the church. Acts chapter 1 starts with, Jesus rose from the dead and went to heaven. And then Acts, the rest of Acts, 27, 28 more chapters is how the church got off the ground and, and how all these, you know, Christians, groups of Christians started popping up all over the world. And so Acts, the book of Acts is the historical recording of that story. And in Acts chapter 18, we're going to find a lot about the city and the church in this place called Ephesus. So before we go there, let me just remind you that Paul is a guy that planted a lot of the churches that you may have heard about in the Bible. Paul was formerly known as a guy named Saul. When Saul was a young man, he was rich. He was tabbed as the next big thing. He was powerful. His religion mixed with his politics. And he was the, he was the, the heir apparent to, to being in the Sanhedrin, being a really powerful religious Jew. And God changed his life. And then he changed his name. And he changed his name from Saul to Paul and spends the second half of his life, rather than persecuting Christians like he did in the first half, promoting the name of Jesus all over the world. He's known as the first missionary. If you go to the back of your Bible or one of these maps that just fell out of mind, you'll see Paul took three missionary journeys, these ever-widening loops all over the known world at the time. First, he takes one in his mid-30s. Then he takes another one after a couple more years. Then he takes another one, a, a big wide loop. If you, if you Google Paul's missionary journeys, you're going to see a map of all these places that he went and these churches that Paul planted. And on his second journey, on the second one, he goes to this place called Ephesus. On his way there, though, right before he got to Ephesus, 
he was in another city called Corinth. And those people are nuts. They actually get two letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And after Corinth, which is where he meets two people, Priscilla and Aquila, they're a married couple and they are Christians and they are pioneers. And they believe in Jesus just as much as Paul does. And in fact, they play a bigger role in planting the church in Ephesus than Paul does. Check this out. In chapter 18, verse 19, it says, they arrived at Ephesus. Let's talk about Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. Paul went, in, went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus. So the first time Paul goes to Ephesus, it's quick, it's pit stop. He comes in, teaches a little bit. They say, we have questions. Will you please stay? He says, you know what? I think Priscilla and Aquila got this thing. I'm going to leave them here and I'm going to set sail. So Paul sets sail and it appears as though this might be just a short, quick pit stop in Paul's journey. But what you're about to find out is there's more that is recorded about the Ephesians church than any other church in the New Testament. We're going to find out a lot more. There were thousands of Jews already living in Ephesus. Let me tell you about the town. Ephesus at the time is, is like the New York City of the region. It is a huge city. Between 300 and 500,000 people live in Ephesus. All of the trade routes connect in Ephesus. Let me show you this map here. This is where Ephesus is, I, the, the yellow box there. You see that it's a port city, which means it's a rich city. And it's the center of religion at the time. There's a, there's a huge statue to the Greek goddess of Artemis that is put up. It's a tourist town. People come from all over the place. It's like a religious voyage to come and to visit Ephesus. And so this is where Aquila and Priscilla are trying to plant this little church in this melting pot, giant city. It's the capital of the eastern part of the empire of Rome. It's a big, big city. And look what Paul says, I will come back if it is God's will. And as it turns out, it is God's will. Paul does come back on his third missionary journey. And he returns to find a lot more Christians. And Priscilla and Aquila, they got this church off the ground. Look at verse 19. This is what it says. Paul came back and he entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Now, now let's, let's make sure we understand this. In Ephesus, there's Jews and there's Greeks living there. There's enough Jews that at one point they built a synagogue. But Jews don't really believe everything that Paul believes about Jesus. Jews think Jesus was a good teacher but not the Messiah. Paul's coming in to say, no, no, no. Jesus was the Messiah that we're waiting for. And so Paul goes into their territory, into their Jewish synagogue and says, this is who Jesus really was. Well, look how they respond. Some of them become obstinate. They refuse to believe and publicly maligned the way. The way was the name that was given to the Christians at the time. So Paul left him. Look what he does. He took the disciples, the Christians, with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius, a local school. Set up and tear down team. They had one. 
they met in the school for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Ephesus was the place to plant a church. It was the place to get the word out because from there people came and then they went and the gospel spread through the whole province of Asia because of this church in Ephesus. So for almost three years, actually, Paul stays in Ephesus, teaches in Ephesus, and I really want to encourage you to go and read Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20 this week. Acts 19 and Acts 20. Read it for yourself. You'll know that I'm not making this up. Let me summarize it for you. In Ephesus, in this time, God does extraordinary things through Paul and through Priscilla and through Aquila and through the Christians there. People that are physically sick are healed instantly from their diseases. People that are filled with demons are instantly freed. There's a group of sorcerers that rely on these scrolls to predict the future and and do things like that. All the sorcerers get together. They pool all their scrolls. They put them in a pile and they all burn their scrolls. The worth of those scrolls was $4 million. God does extraordinary things through this church in Ephesus. The name and the power of Jesus grows through the whole area. So much so that there begins to be this riot brewing in Ephesus. This is what happens. You see, Ephesus, it's kind of like, I was trying to think of how to explain it. It's kind of like Orlando and Disney World a little bit. People are coming and going. It's a little bit of a tourist spot. People are trying to pick up souvenirs of Mickey Mouse or Minnie Mouse. In the same way, if Ephesus is the center of religion and there's a giant statue of the Greek goddess Artemis, it's one of the, 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 the seven wonders of the ancient world, this statue is. And when people would come and visit this statue of Artemis, there were all these silversmiths that would make little models of it, and they would try to sell them on the side of the road so that people could take one away and say, see, I went to Ephesus, and I went and saw it for myself. Well, because Christianity is taking off through Paul, there's these silversmiths that are going, man, this is affecting my business. And so you see Christianity actually taking the economy and changing how people are operating, and all the silversmiths get together. They actually have a union, and they start a mob, and they start this parade down to the 25,000-seat auditorium in Ephesus, which you can actually go and visit right now today, still exists. They start this mob, and they start cheering, great is the God of Artemis. Great is the God of Artemis. Great is the God of Artemis. And they begin, other people start to join, and all of a sudden there's this giant mob, and they start pulling in some of these Christians that were in this church into the center of this auditorium. And guess what Paul does? Paul, being the beast that he is, begs his friends if he can go out there and have, it, have a go at him. He begs his friends to let him go out there and preach the gospel to all these people that are saying, great is the God of Artemis. But the Christians, they hold him back and they, they held him down and they don't let him go out there. And somebody comes out there. You can read about it in Acts chapter 20 and, and kind of dilutes the crowd and, and the riot goes away. But Paul was this close to being teared limb from limb in Ephesus for preaching the gospel. And then Paul sails to Macedonia on his third journey. Check this out. On his third journey, he visits a few other churches 
he starts to make his way back to Jerusalem, which is like home base for Paul. Third journey is over. He's going to go back to Jerusalem. He starts making his way back, but he goes, I got one more thing I got to tell Ephesus. But he actually, he actually says, I don't have time to stop in Ephesus because there's so much going on there. I think I'm probably going to get stuck. You know, the person that you need to tell something to, but you can't call them. You have to text them because if you call them, they're going to talk. You don't have time for that. That's kind of like Ephesus to Paul here. What Paul does on his way back, sails by Ephesus, stops in a place called Miletus, which is right down the coast. He says, I've got something I got to say to the church leaders in Ephesus. And so he sends for the elders of the church. He says, bring the elders of the church to Miletus. I'm going to meet them here. I can't go there, but bring them here. I've got something to say. And I just, I thought about summarizing it and thought, ah, I just got to read this part. This is Acts chapter 19, verse 17. And, and it's longer than I usually read, but it's, it's amazing. I want, I'm going to try, to try to put yourself there and imagine Paul, who's been the pastor of this church for three years, meeting with the elders on, the, on, the, on this place called Miletus. And, and, and what he has to say, this is amazing. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to him, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but, but have taught you publicly from house to house. You know my life. You saw me do it. I didn't pull any punches. I didn't, I didn't back away when I thought I was in trouble. I gave it to you. I shot straight with you. You know, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Skip down to verse 25. This is where it gets heavier. Paul says, now I know that none of you among who I've gone about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. He's essentially saying, I've done everything that God has asked me to do for your church. I have set you up to succeed. I've given you the truth. You're not going to see me anymore. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Care for your church. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock even from your own number. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So you don't just got to be worried about the people that love Artemis. And the people that love their synagogue and that religion, you've got to, you've got to keep your eye out for people even within the church. Satan's going to kind of come in and try to sow seeds of disunity and discourse and people are going to come up from within and be members, of, members that create division and draw away people. You've got to be careful. 
So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And then verse 36 concludes this meeting. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. Can you picture that where Paul kneels down? I imagine they all knelt down and Paul prays and they wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. They walked him to the ship. Have you ever had a goodbye like this? Where, where you've just done life, like the, the most significant moments of your life were shared and then this person, you're probably not going to see him again. Have you ever had a goodbye like that? Can you imagine being there? And they weep and they embrace and they kiss and they walk into the ship and he gets on the ship and he sails to Jerusalem and they watch the ship off in the distance get to the point where they can't see it anymore. It passes beyond the horizon and they never see Paul again. Soon after that, Paul, it was coming for him, he's arrested and he's taken past Ephesus all the way to Rome. And he's in Rome for two years under house arrest in prison. And from there, he writes letters to tons of churches. We have four of them. Four of them are in our Bibles. The book of Philippians was a letter that was written to the church in Philippi when Paul was in prison. The book of the, Col the Colossians, that was a letter that was written to the church in Colossae. And that was written when Paul was in prison. The book of Philemon, was written to a man named Philemon who actually went to the church at Colossae. And the fourth one that we know of, he probably wrote more, but the fourth one that we know of is the book of Ephesians. He wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus, to those guys that he knelt with and cried with and said, I'm out of here. And this is the last time you're going to see me, but it wasn't the last time they heard from him because he wrote a letter and a man named Onesiphorus took it from Rome and took it all the way there. And we have this letter in our Bibles. It's called the book of Ephesians. And this is how it starts. Here's just two verses. That's all you get today. You got to come back for more. He writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He addresses it by writing his name first. It's how they did it at the time. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, to the Christians at the church. And the way that he wrote it, it implied that it wasn't just for Ephesus. It was meant to be a letter that circulated, but it was definitely supposed to start at Ephesus. Everything started at Ephesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to remember this context before we start making our way through. We've got to know what Ephesus was like, what the church was like, who Paul was talking to, what they were facing, what they were dealing. And here's the cool thing about Ephesians. I was thinking about this. You could take away the other 65 books of the Bible and you could just give me Ephesians and I'd make it. I'd be all right. I mean, I'd miss a lot probably, but at the end of the day, I'd, I'd make it. I'd be all right because Ephesians 
What is God like? Ephesians tells us. Who is Jesus? Ephesians tells us. How can I be saved from my sins? Ephesians tells us. How can I have a healthier marriage? Ephesians tells us. I don't want to screw up my kids. How do I be a good parent? Ephesians tells us. Does it really matter if I go to church? Can I be a Christian without going to church? Ephesians tells us. Does God really love me? Even though he knows everything about me, does he really love me? Ephesians tells us. How much am I allowed to drink? Ephesians tells us. Am I allowed to cuss if I'm by myself and nobody else can hear me? Ephesians tells us. What do I need to do to repair a broken friendship? Ephesians tells us. I'm overwhelmed, I'm busy, I'm anxious, I'm worried. What do I do? Ephesians tells us. If you took away the rest of the Bible and you just gave me Ephesians, I could make it. I could live a holy life that honors God. I could know where salvation is found. I could make it. That's how theologically rich Ephesians is. And let me, uh, let me just close with this today. And um, this is important to understand before we get into chapter one a little bit more next week, all right? We're going to learn a lot as we go through, the, go through Ephesians. It's going to feel a little bit like we're trying to drink out of a fire hydrant because every sentence is packed full of words that, frankly, I don't even understand half the time. We're going to learn a lot. I'm going to learn a lot. In studying to give these messages, I have already learned a lot. I'm going to learn a lot. Ephesians has six chapters. Catch this. Six chapters, but it's conveniently divided into two thematically. There's, there's three chapters on the front, three chapters on the back. Chapters 1, 2, 3. Chapters 4, 5, 6. Chapters 1, 2, 3, the first half of the book of Ephesians, is very theological. Frankly, without somebody explaining it to you, kind of hard to understand. It's heady. For those of you that like to study and take notes and learn what the Greek word was, you're going to love the first half of Ephesians. There's a lot about God, there's a lot about grace, and there's a lot about the gospel. The first half of the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, 3, is the gospel story. And maybe the best way to put it is the first half helps us have good theology. The first half helps us have good theology. It helps us believe like a Christian. It helps us believe like a Christian to know the deeper things of God. And it's going to feel that way. And then the second half, chapters 4 through 6, are very, very practical. Paul does not pull any punches. He tells the Ephesians how to live like Christians. If the first half is about how to believe like a Christian, the second half is how to behave like a Christian. If the first half is the gospel story, the second half is our story in light of the gospel. And if the first half helps us have good theology, the second half helps us have good works. It helps us live it out. The first half helps us become Christians. The second half helps us live like Christians. So for those of you that want me to just tell you how it is and say this is how to live a holy life, then you're going to love the second half because it talks about alcohol and our words and sex and forgiveness and serving people. It talks about all these things and it gives you practical ways to live out your faith.
Remember, this book was written to the Ephesians to help them mature spiritually. And in the same way, I'm sharing this with you guys, Three Creeks, and myself, if I'm being honest. It's time for us to mature. And friends, you got to hear me say this as I close this message. A mature Christ follower has both good theology and good works. A mature Christ follower has both good theology, an understanding of who God is and what he has done, and good works, a life that reflects that they believe this to be true. And if you think about it, one without the other isn't spiritually mature. It's spiritually immature. You guys know probably somebody who has great theology and no good works. Don't you? And it just makes you cringe. It's people that know a lot about God, but their lives don't reflect it at all. Good theology without good works makes stale, prideful, religious hypocrites. Good, the- good theology without good works is why many of us are skeptical about church. Even the people that are here and come all the time, it's the reason that you might leave. Because good theology without good works just makes us sick. It doesn't make any sense. When we see people talk about Jesus and know a lot about Jesus, but never serve their neighbors and don't love people that disagree with them, we go, gross. That's good theology without good works. And and James, the half-brother of Jesus, put it best when he said, faith without works is dead. Having a good theology but not living it out is dead. On the other side, though, good works without good theology is also dead. It might be worse. Good works without good theology is not spiritually mature either. That's a recipe for burnout. When we have good works without good theology, we might be caring for people's temporary bodies, but we're not caring for their eternal souls. It leads us to putting our faith in what we have done for God rather than what God has done for us. We subconsciously or consciously begin finding our value or our identity in what we have done and how much we have served and how much we have given rather than the God who served and gave to us. And it's just a recipe for burnout and it's a recipe for bitterness because you look around at other people and go, they're not doing or serving as much as me. And then it just becomes this thing that grows inside of you. So good works without good theology, that's not rich either. Or that's not mature either. And I, I, good works without good theology is a never-ending hamster wheel that none of us want to be on. Where we're always chasing and trying to be good enough for God. One without the other is not maturity. It doesn't honor God and it's not who we want to be either. A mature Christ follower has both good theology and good works. And so, friends, as we make our way through Ephesians... Chapter 1, 2, and 3 is going to lay a foundation, a spiritual base for us to be spurred on from. We're not going to get right into, here's what to do, here's the list. First, we're going to talk about what God has done for us. And then in chapter 4, 5, and 6, I'm just going to tell you now, if you don't want your life to change, you should skip those Sundays. 
Because what Paul shares with that church on how to live as mature Christians, to not be infants tossed around, but to walk in spiritual maturity, he says, hey, this is how it is. This is how to be different, how to look different, how to live a life that's actually worth somebody asking a question about. And so as we go through Ephesians, friends, I'm just telling you, this is the perfect time. We're a five-year-old church-ish. We're going to turn five in the middle of this thing. And, uh, and what God could do in us and through us in this series, I'm not sure if I've ever been more excited. So come back for, we'll start in verse three next week. Here's how we're going to close our service today. We're going to get a chance to take communion as a church family start the year right. We could actually turn off the sound system and I could have said nothing. And if we just came and did communion, that would have been powerful enough I never want communion to feel like the thing that we just kind of add on at the end. It actually is really the center of who we are and why we're here. So as a church, we're going to get to take communion. Jesus was with his disciples at the Last Supper the night before he died. And Jesus himself took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. And he took the cup and he took a sip. And he said, this is my blood given for you. And then he closed that whole section by saying, do this in remembrance of me. And he passed it around. And each one of the disciples did the same. They took a piece of the bread. They took a sip from the cup. And they did that to remember what Christ had done for them. And so today... I want to invite you to do the same. We're going to do this in remembrance of Jesus. So there's a table here, table there, table there. In a minute, I'll pray and I'll get off the stage. And then I'll give you time to do that. And then we'll sing a song together. But before we do that, let me just give you these, this tip, if you will, on, on, in my opinion, a great way to take communion. Once you have that bread in your hand and that cup in your hand, spend 30 seconds and look back, reflect on both what Christ has done for you in the past, but also maybe your last couple days or your last couple weeks. Look back, reminisce. And then for 30 seconds, look around and be reminded that you don't have to do this alone. That there's a church here, there's other people that need Jesus too. You're not the only person that needs forgiven for their sins. Look around and celebrate that you're not by yourself. And then spend 30 seconds looking forward. Look ahead. Think about heaven. Think about what's coming. Think about eternity with Jesus, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. Look ahead. Close your eyes and imagine what that will be like. Look back. Look around. Look ahead. And then take communion. And then we'll sing Firm Foundation one more time. Father, we come before you. We're going to take communion and we're not doing it in remembrance of anybody other than you. Father, as we take this bread and as we take this cup, would you help us to remember what you've done for us? Would you help us to celebrate that we're not alone? Would you help us to look forward to what's coming up ahead? Would you center our hearts on what you have done for us, not what we have done for you? We take communion in remembrance of you today, God. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com. Thank you.